obviously I think of you as a, a music person first, as a music professor first. And where where does math where does math enter into it for you? Well, uh, it's like a lot of things. I I've, I chose math or music as my primary field mainly because it uh, engaged me both mentally and physically hmm. in a kind of 50-50 proposition. And I like to be engaged in that way. So in trying to figure out what career I wanted out of many that I wanted to follow, uh, it was the only one that provided that kind of 50-50 balance for me, kept me active physically and yeah. in league with my mind. Uh, and, and so therefore, music has been perfect for that. And I, and I consider myself primarily a composer and a musician, so that's fine. But since I was a very small child, I have been interested in many other things as well, and I've kept those interests alive for a long time because I believe strongly they, that that human beings are capable of doing more than one <laughs> thing in their lives uh, successfully, or at least usefully, and that many times these various disciplines one engages in can be useful to one another in yeah. one form or another. So I write novels and plays and do pictures and so all kinds of things that I I then uh, in my mind somewhere subconsciously or sometimes consciously attempt to relate and then I attempt to learn how things fit together rather than pull apart mm. and as you know in science and law all the time we're we're pulling things apart yeah. to see how they work yeah pulling them apart pulling them apart pulling them apart and getting smaller and smaller and smaller until we lose you know, a sense of what part they play in the overall scheme of things. And I don't want to lose that, so I, I keep all of these sort of facets of my life um, going, and, and, and I t- attempt to, uh, uh, to relate them as I do. We, we, yeah, we, we tend to think of math and not just music, but the arts in general as being pretty siloed, you know, traditionally being pretty, pretty apart from each other. Where, where, did they, where did they begin to converge for you? At, at what point did you realize how much math informed music? Well, in the case of music, uh, math is usually the opposite of what you said. In fact, that mm. most people think that composers like Bach yeah. and others were really operating mathematically, but mm. on, a, on a, 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 a less than algebraic or calculitic form, but on a more, you know... Maybe uh, not conscious of the fact. And, and maybe, and probably not conscious yeah. of it, but more on an axiomatic form in the sense that, you know... Um, there are certain rules and regulations you have to follow. I mean, basically, Bach wrote according to algorithms. He loved to. And the algorithms are not perfect or complete, so therefore he was allowed to escape them Mm. in various ways that make his music different than anybody else using those same algorithms. And um, that's what I think our appreciation revolves around, the fact that he was able to write fugues and all these very tightly constrained idioms and forms of music and still make them sound wonderfully musical and invite our bodies and our minds to to invest uh, in them so that we are more and more appreciative of what he's done. And so on a very simplistic level, that would be it. But on a more practical level, in my own case, there's no way you can program without being involved with math, at least at yeah. some minuscule level. And, uh, you know, as time goes on, you become more interested in it in a more... Uh, elegant, well, I don't know if elegance is the right word, but in a more um, interesting way. And um, besides, I mean, I, I just have a lot of math books around. Yeah. And I'm constantly interested in doing it. And so when I'm tired of one subject, I go to that one and, and back and forth. And it just plays a role. And I'm not sure beyond instinct what a lot of my work has to do directly with math, but I know it does. And then again, my hmm. recent work with... Um, with a program that I've been working on for about seven or eight years is directly related to math, and so uh, that's that's been very useful to me. When when we speak about Bach, something that you know is is so transcendent for so many people, and you know for for him, I you know I think was very entrenched in in the church and in in religion. I'm wondering if um, if there's a potential to take anything away from that sort of pure center, sensory enjoyment that you get when you start to analyze it on a on a mathematic level? Well, I don't think anybody tends to really analyze it mathematically in any sophisticated sense. Mm. I mean, these are more rules and constraints and algorithms yeah. rather than pure math. But math, of course, is in fact uh, a part of algorithms and, and constraints and so forth. Uh, 
But if you if you uh, imagine a form like a fugue, which has, in his day at least, some pretty specific limitations and constraints placed upon him, and then are able to use those in ways that that make them literally seem to the ear and to the human mind and body as if there are no constraints there at all. He's so familiar with the milieu that that it just seems like uh, he's writing them uh, without giving those constraints a thought. And of hmm. course, he supposedly said during his life, although I'm sure it's apocryphal, but nonetheless, <laughs> he and many other composers have said that, you know, basically... Um, you know, anyone could do what I've done if if they spend the time that I've taken to hmm. do it. In other words, he gave himself... He, he he really took the... You know, it sounds like what he's saying is that it's rather pedestrian. What he's yeah. really saying is, if you took... You know, that he, he, what he's saying is he's not a genius. It wasn't something that God gave him. It was something that he had to work a long time sure. to get to have that ability. And then he's using it. So if, if anybody wanted to work that long... They would most likely be able to do the same kinds of things he does, but he's guessing. I'm sure in the background that nobody's willing to take the amount of time it took for him to do this. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there, obviously there's been a lot of composers before and a lot of composers since, and I'm sure some of them had that, you know, monk monk like devotion to creating to creating music. There has to be some some something there. There has to be some element that is that has made his music. Um, it lasts as long as it has. I mean, I don't know if genius is the right word or if genius is is ever the right word, but it, it can't it can't just be sweat, can it? Well, nothing is just anything, so yeah. that's certainly the case that it's not just sweat. But uh, on the other hand, I would I would uh, point out that while Bach has quote unquote lasted for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, he was not known during his own lifetime. Yeah. And today he's known primarily amongst um, uh, academics mm-hmm. and other people who are very, very involved with, you know, classical music and music of the Baroque in particular. And and those people that we see on the, the sidewalk in downtown Santa Cruz, <laughs> if you mention the name Bach, they will have certainly heard of Bach and say, oh, yes, yes, Bach. That's funny, actually. But they won't even actually have ever heard of one single piece of his, or maybe they have, and probably not liked it, but sat through. Or were in a sh- in a store, in a store <laughs> listening to it as as music. Yeah, that, it's funny that you br- you bring that up. Actually, this 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 is a, a something I had forgotten about till right now. But um, uh, in Santa Cruz on Pacific Avenue, outside the New Leaf Market, for a while there, they were blasting classical music huh. to drive people away. Because there were groups of um, of, of squatters of kind of oh. gutter punks hanging it outside, and that was you know it's sort of the um, the the tanks with the loud the loud sound systems that they used to to drive people out of you know the Koresh compound or something uh-huh. like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, I you know, it wouldn't have driven me away unless it was of course too loud yeah. or or performed badly. But uh, yeah, I can imagine that. I I don't think many. I mean, I think if you were to take. Uh, an average slice of an average mm-hmm. population of the United States of America, we wouldn't find that many people really yeah. listen to Bach at all. Yeah, uh, they may have listened to it once in their life and could say might they might recognize it if they heard that piece again, but probably not. In general, Bach is appreciated by you know Bach aficionados, and uh, they're aficionados for a lot of composers like Beethoven, yeah. and Mozart, and so forth, whose names are also known. But I don't think they're really being listened to any more now than they were a long time ago. And pretty much by the same types of people, there's certainly not something you can make uh, money yeah. on if you're a record company. Yes, yeah. it doesn't yeah. work that way. I mean, a classical music recording of a Bach, say the B minor Mass, would probably uh, sell at the same rate per hundred years as a rock album today would sell in ten minutes. I heard a I, I heard a number thrown out um, of a, a contemporary. Uh, I think she's a cellist. I, I, her name is escaping me but but it was they were saying it was a successful album and that she had sold 25,000 copies which you know in 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 the grand scheme of things when you're talking about records it that does that doesn't sound like a lot of records but it's a no, phenomenally it, successful it sounds incredible classical as, record as a composer somebody who does have quite a few records out there yeah. it sounds literally impossible although i found avenues 
other avenues to have my music work that is getting numbers in that vicinity, it's not the same as somebody having put out. Those are all yeah. free. Those are YouTube videos free. It is, you know, recorded, recorded music clearly changed music in general and certainly classical music. Did it, did it take... Did it take something away from classical music? Is that something that you need to to hear live to 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 truly appreciate? I don't know. I mean, I I really don't honestly have a have a uh, have a uh, provable mm-hmm. response to that. I think it depends on the individual. Uh, I, for example, uh, hate concerts. I I I don't go to them if I possibly can avoid it hmm. uh, because concerts to me uh, are. Um, social occasions uh, and uh, while I feel like I'm to a degree social or at least sociable <laughs> they're they're not the kind of events I want to go to they're you know I have everything from elbow fights for the <laughs> seat rests to hassing people in front of me and people who smell and burp and have the flu and cough on me and <laughs> and I have to watch people saw and bow instruments which I've seen a hundred thousand times before and I don't want to see again there's mistakes all over the place and uh, I don't like that, and and so hmm. I prefer myself to listen to recorded music, yeah. uh, recorded that's that's been fooled with by an editor to make it sound like it was supposed to sound, rather hmm. than necessarily like some live version of it. Uh, although I can take concerts if I'm the only person in the audience, <laughs> which doesn't occur very often. I I, w- I would have guessed that, um, given what I know about you, that you would have appreciated the the element of. Of chaos, you know, of, of of imperfections that are are that make the music different every time it's played. I mean, you know, we were talking about this little uh, little piece of sand art, and and you know, I had mentioned to you that one of the fascinating things is once you turn it around, you'll never see that combination again. You know, there's the mathematic possibilities are astronomical, and certainly you can listen to uh, a piece of classical music. More or less, it'll be the same every single time if it's on CD. Obviously, there's different acoustics in the room and these other elements that and play there. Different. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, you're physiologically different, but um, th- these mistakes, I mean, aren't these mistakes and imperfections, isn't that what makes music interesting? Not to me. Hmm. Uh, and I don't think it's quite a con- the contradiction you make it out to be. Okay. Uh, I think it's what's intended. I mean, I think as a composer, I tended, I intend my music to be played as I written it, mm. and under the best of circumstances, each time it's played, it'll be played pretty close to the original mm-hmm. and what I intended. When it's not, it's different than what I intended, and therefore I feel a little bit uh, short, short. Uh, um, I was going to say short circuited, but I mean short, whatever. I can't think of the words right now. But uh, if it's not accurate, then and it's intended to be accurate. Yeah then it's, they're, they're clearly mistakes, and I clearly don't like them. The uh, the visual uh, chaotic thing we just saw was meant to be a mm. visual chaotic mm-hmm. thing. And so my appreciation uh, changes uh, because I'm, I'm tuned in to the purpose mm-hmm. of what I'm looking at. So... You know, when I when I go to a concert expecting to hear Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, for example, I truly expect to hear mm-hmm. Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, not peppered with thousands of coughs here and there, and and a giggle or a burp or or some other somebody getting out and walking out of the hall or mistakes made on the stage. Mm. I expect to hear Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, as close and as excitingly played as possible. Uh, when I go to hear jazz improvisation, on the other hand then I appreciate something else about it. I appreciate the variations in performances mm-hmm. from one to the next because that's what was intended in the process. And therefore, if the intent is such that I should that I should and would want to attend an event or listen to a recording in which this kind of uh, imperfection, as you refer to it, is present, if that's the intent, I'm perfectly happy and involved with it in that regard. But if you know, if I have to listen to Beethoven perform badly, uh, I'm not particularly <laughs> pleased because I don't think Beethoven meant that for me. Yeah. Unless I'm in a very strange mood, which is quite possible. I yeah. mean, I'm, in quite a, I'm in those quite frequently, and then you know, I can get a good laugh out of such a thing, but yeah. not generally. Yeah, I, and uh, uh, you know, forgive again my very base level knowledge of, of classical music, but I, you know, I'm thinking. I, I, I told you I wanted to talk about Bach a little bit earlier, and I'm thinking about. Um, 
somebody like Glenn Gould, who's possibly the most famous person of the second half of the the 20th century uh, when it comes to playing Bach. Um, You know, a a 30-year-old Glenn Gould and Glenn Gould towards the end of his life would play the same piece very differently. Um, Do we know what Bach's intent for the music is? that's the point I was going to make, is that, you know, in Bach's time, the notation required, uh, you know, notes and rhythms but uh, a lot of what he wrote in terms of let's say figured basses and other things were left open to performers and there's nobody nobody alive at least nobody that uh, would truly suggest that they know everything about how Bach is supposed to be performed mm-hmm. we call it performance practice um, so therefore you know it's fun to hear yeah uh, Gould's interpretation on two different levels because um, and, and there's a you know some some really great examples of that in the well tempered clavier that he plays yeah. uh, he played it twice in his life the whole set of 96 works and there are some absolutely different takes on on different fugues and and different uh, preludes one of them sounds like collection. it's played by a, by a you know 25 year old and the other sounds like it's played somebody towards yeah. the end of their life yeah maybe uh, sometimes it's not so easy to hear the age difference. Yeah, but there's uh, an energy, I think, right? But there's right? an energy and a, and a yeah. different type of energy. Yeah. There's a type of wisdom which replaces the energy that gives you that feel. But he did things, even in this first edition, if you forget the second edition of that particular uh, you know, set of volumes of his uh, performances, that are, are uh, strikingly different than others. Hmm. Uh, and it's, I mean, I've, 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 atten- I've not attended, I've actually taught at universities where his music, his, his recordings were not allowed in the recording library because they were so controversial at the time when they first came out. Yeah. I'm old enough to even remember that. And and uh, yet they're fascinating because they, you know, he, he'll perform, like for, for example, the very first prelude in the first book of the Walter Clavier is his first edition was played like a typewriter. It was just precision <laughs> and staccato. Nobody thought of that. Where everybody else played it romantically on a keyboard, usually it was just... But, you know, because Bach didn't clearly make clear what he wanted, because his notation was not that was not sufficient for that, you know, both are possible. Hmm. Now, we imagine that that first prelude was played by a... was his, you know, sort of keyboard imitation of a lute, in which case one imagines that performance practice would be to go listen to a lute play it mm-hmm. and then if you're going to play it on the piano or harpsichord even which is more likely the instrument that that uh, might have been used then you know we should do it that way and i think i think that in that regard performers tend to uh, tend to vary with none of them actually hmm. including gould uh, coming close to what I imagined Bach might have wanted, but I don't know for a fact what he wanted, and so therefore listening to these variations is wonderful. Yeah. It's not so interesting to listen to them when a composer like Mahler or Stravinsky sets down precision marks on the music with, mm. with lots of dynamics and slurs and ties, choice of instruments and so forth, which are all very carefully attended to that that mean that you're supposed to do it that way. Hmm. Uh, there's maybe some small modicum of performance practice involved, but he wants it that way. And when you hear it a different way, well, then somebody's just trying to pretend that they're better than Stravinsky at, at writing his own music. And that seems uh, <laughs> presumptuous at best and yeah. uh, silly. Yeah. Uh, and I uh, don't find that interesting beyond a couple of seconds of listening. Hey everybody, uh, please please pardon the, the brief interruption here. I just wanted to let you know that this episode of RIYL is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio for a free trial and to get 10% off. You can go to squarespace.com and use the, uh, use the, use the coupon code RIYL and uh, you know, maybe they will, they will sponsor us again. We shall see. Has has age affected affected your music when when you're when you're performing when you're when you sit down in front of a piano do you do you play differently than you did? Well, I don't write at the piano. Uh, I write at the computer, so yeah. it's a little different than that. Uh, but are you saying that? Uh, well, yeah, because I'm not using my physical body yeah. to do these things. I'm using my ears instead, 
And my ears are still pretty good. I, I don't notice that. I mean, I notice my style over my lifetime, which has been now about seven. well, not 70 yet, but I mean, I'm 70, but I haven't been composing that long. But let's say 60-plus years mm-hmm. of composing, sure, I see changes. But I don't think they're limited to um, to my physical abilities, mm. though I have played many of my pieces uh, and given them premieres and so forth. Um, no, I don't. I don't quite see them in the same way that you'd see it, for example, in Bach. Yeah. Who performed all of his music, uh, you know, in some fashion or another, organ music, keyboard music. Uh, conducted the choirs and so forth, even though he couldn't sing. All, well, he could sing all the parts, I'm sure, but not at the same time. Um, he, he was talented, not that talented, though, right. perhaps. Um, you, you had said the last the last time I spoke to you, you had, had mentioned that uh, the part of the reason why a lot of this um, computer composition came about was uh, you attempting to sort of find your own voice to maybe use Bach as as a base for that and, and, you know, figure out your own composing style. Um, is it clear when you, when you have your own composing style? Is it clear when, when you know you're writing no, your own no, songs? No, no, absolutely not. No, no, I never succeeded. You never succeeded? No, no. I, what I succeeded at doing is getting a program, oh, well, I think I've succeeded, <laughs> at getting a program to, to be moderately successful at imitating, imitating any composer's style, which is, which can be effectively uh, notated in a manner in which uh, that style is caught in some way in the notation uh, if I've made myself clear there um, and therefore caught mine but there's no way to sort of split the part of the program other than a few small hints that enable you to really determine style in a way that can be so codified that you could write it out clearly and cleanly on a sheet of paper in in some kind of language that we could all agree that that is the essence of Cope style, Stravinsky style, Bach mm. style, Mahler style, mm-hmm. and so forth. So it would be hard for somebody to create a Cope program. Well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on the person involved. Um, <coughs> I mean, I've created a, many of my works are written by my program, mm-hmm. uh, and I like them. And when I like them, I like them. Uh, but in terms of having the information to feed into that machine that you know it will come out being a cope piece. Yeah, I don't think I can do that yeah. uh, as clearly as I can using the particular method that my program works with, which is not that. Mm-hmm. It's not rule-driven, it's database-driven, and as a result, um, the data itself is determining the style rather than you know, my uh, programming and constraints that would allow the style then to come to four merely out of rules that I supply it. In, in terms of this, this, this breakdown between, I guess, chaos and, and perfection that we were speaking about earlier, um, is the end game for, for the programs, is it, is it more an enjoyment of, of the chaos, of, of the fact that they'll never come out quite the same and that you don't know what they're going to sound like? Or is the, is the idea of just, just generating more pieces to, to be out there in the world? Well, surprise is certainly a part of it. I mean, I, I am I am uh, I'm in love with certain styles that I yeah. you know, historically uh, that exist out there, and of which I have listened to most of the music available in those styles, mm. and uh, creating more music in those styles that more than just approximate them uh, is is a uh, is what I you know what I think I overall wanted to do aside from some other. Uh, less artistic visions, like just trying to piss people off. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> other than those kinds of uh, of issues, you know, I'm I'm I you know I've, I feel that it's it's what you know ultimately what music is all about is the is the transference of a certain kind of energy hmm. to a listener who creates whatever image they want to in their minds as they listen, and and in that process of uh, inspiring listeners and listeners inspiring themselves, there is a uh, an incredible resource uh, that's gained for us as, uh, as human beings. Mm. Uh, it's not just relaxing or dancing to or, or something relatively simple like that. It's something much more profound. And... Uh, 
you know, people who really get involved with the music they they listen to really attempt to understand it in some way, knowing full well when they begin that they will never truly understand it, but that trying, in the trying, there's something to be gained, um, you know, achieve a certain kind of of um, melding between the uh, the excitement, lust, energy of a work of music and the intellectual, um, what shall I call it, the the, the intellectual uh, transformation hmm. of that energy into a kind of beauty that is. Uh, is indescribable. I mean, it's kind of a nirvana that happens when, hmm. you, when you really hear uh, a great piece which you know something about and you profoundly love and you listen to it played really, really well or at least according to the composer's wishes as far as you know of, that occurs that, you know, I've rarely found in any other art uh, that I can imagine. In fact, the only, only other place I've ever found it is in the eyepiece of a telescope. Hmm. And uh, as I may have mentioned last time, I, I'm, I've been an amateur astronomer all my life, a, a rather heavily involved amateur astronomer in building telescopes and so forth. And when I get out and, you know, in the middle of the night, or did, I don't do it so much anymore, but when I did get out in the middle of the night on a very clear sky or up in the mountains at 10,000 feet with a, with a, a good-sized reflector refractor telescope and, and look at... Uh, you know, a a um, a cluster of stars yeah. that may be some odd number of light years away, and realize the, what I'm looking at and the hmm. beauty of it is, it's sublime to the point of of um, of indescribability. It's I don't know uh, any way to put it into words, but it's similar to what I receive in the in the sense of music. Music to me is more profound. Otherwise, I'd be had been an astronomer, which I really wanted to be for most hmm. of my early life, an uh, astrophysicist, until I learned that they were doing things other than I thought they were doing, and then I... That they they were looking at printouts of pictures Yeah, of, not so much in my early days yeah. they were they doing that, but they're certainly doing that now. Yeah. Uh, but in, in, in those days, again, specialization had taken over to the point where I had to specialize into this one area that was so small that I'd never have a need to look through yeah. a telescope at it. You know, The photographer was doing all that, Photography. It was all photography. Mm-hmm. What I was looking at is on paper. I mean, yeah. There was no rush. There was no excitement of being, you know, with those stars in some way. You're not going, Galileo in the way they're right. doing it now. There's yeah. not that fresh experience. Yeah. You're not. You're not the only one looking at that star <laughs> in the at that particular moment. Yeah. And wondering whether the you know Vega. I remember last night outside looking at Vega, and wondering about our many postulations and science fiction and so forth, that that might be a star that we'd be uh, thinking that there might be a planet around mm-hmm. that's near enough that we could actually eventually get there in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, and, you know, imagining what's there. And, and yeah. all that reminisces me back to music because that's mm. the kind of experience I get when a great piece is played really, really well and I'm in the right mood for it. Does the knowledge that it's a piece that's been created on a machine, does that affect the way you listen to it? Does that affect your enjoyment? Uh, it doesn't affect the the amount of enjoyment, it, it, but it, I do listen to it differently. Yeah. Um, I do listen to it differently. And and uh, how different it depends on the uh, model, the approach that the person who wrote the program, the music is being created by, used. Um let, let let me give you another example, uh, maybe a better example for me. As a composer, I will often uh, uh, fool around. <laughs> I don't mean that uh, physically in this <laughs> sense. I, I fool around in this sense with my computer programs and allow a certain amount of what we call you know quasi-randomness or quasi-indeterminacy into the process. And, and for me, uh, chance is an interesting... An extremely useful thing uh, because it creates a kind of accidents, if you will, mm. things that I'd never thought of before that yeah. might be useful that I can use. And since there's no copyright on these accidents, I can steal them without 
giving a second thought to it and make them mine and nobody will know the difference. Or see something that's something that, you know, Buck might have been might have brought into the the program beyond those, you know, those the, those clear mathematics that he had. Obviously, he was bringing something personal to the table yes, that yeah. made it different from everybody else. But this wouldn't be personal. This is mm. from the universe. Yeah. You see, and the universe is a wonderful place. I yeah. mean, you know, people keep telling me that, you know, <laughs> if it isn't if it isn't composed by a human being, then it isn't, you know, what's the purpose? Hmm. And, you know, and I say, well, you know, sunsets aren't created by human beings except indirectly by smog, hmm. you know, but, you know, sunsets are beautiful. The stars in the sky are beautiful. They didn't come into being with human beings. I mean, basically, the universe can be if you want it to be. If you don't want it to be, it doesn't matter. But I want it to be. Is a beautiful, unsuspecting treasure of a place. And so whenever I, I use... Uh, a modicum, or even more of a mod- more than a modicum of chance or indeterminacy, into my programs, I do it on purpose to be able to listen to the sunsets, hmm. if you will. Yeah. If you can imagine that, uh, that's in the that's in the resultant music, um, because I I do think the things I see around me as I drive through the countryside or or fly from one place to another, where I always sit, if I can, next to the window seat so I can mm. look out. Mm-hmm. No matter how many times I've flown in my life, it's still the place to be. And and look at, you know, some of which has not yet been sculpted by man. I can still see these beautiful scenes, these mountains, tops, and the snow, and, and, and you know, know that no human being, well, maybe not no human being, but most human beings have never touched those spots. And, and how sacred and beautiful they really are, and that's when I when I listen to the music. Sometimes I'll hear something, and I'll say that's absolutely gorgeous, and I don't give a damn what composed it. You know, hmm. I really don't give a damn. It's not a matter of did somebody do that or somebody didn't do that. In fact, if quite the reverse. In fact, it's it's that somebody didn't do that. Yeah, and that I'm listening to something which which would never have happened had I not allowed it to. And and it's gorgeous, and I'll include it right in my work without a second thought of it. I won't tell anybody because that'll probably get them all upset. <laughs> so I don't, unless I feel like getting them upset, which I often do anyway. So maybe I yeah. will tell them. But but basically, you know, I don't spend my time at that because I'm more interested in how they'll listen to the music. But but I don't I don't try to credit it to anything in particular, except listening to the universe which is just like watching the universe it's a wondrous place but you know it's, and, and, and um, again you last time you had, had showed us the program and of the, the Bach chorales and, and told us that you, you grade each one of them yeah, and yeah. as they as they come out and you know as, as you would expect most of them are C's that's how that's how it falls on the on the learning curve but have uh, you well, ever of course some of many of Bach's are C's too so <laughs> you've got to point that out but nonetheless less that, so than my program for sure yeah but um are, are are there any are there any instances of um, pure random chance of something that a, a program you've created has generated that you would that really has that truly transcendent effect that you look for in music? Uh, okay, you're talking about things that occur over a longer period of time. Now you're talking about a complete piece of music as opposed to mm. what I was earlier speaking of or speaking to, which was small fragments of things that mm-hmm. I would hear and then yeah. include in the right place in the music. Longer pieces that hold together as music, which involve structure, form, and a lot of other things besides just pleasantry for a couple of seconds or so, uh, are enormously difficult to... Mm. They, they just sound like they're wandering all over the map. And in, in my case, I've only written, or not written, if you will, <laughs> one piece that... that generated. Me, that generated one yeah. piece that had that. And it was a, it was a piece that just simply started down low with a with a series of voices and randomly these these different voices moved uh, to a very very high point so there was a real destination in mind they just kept going up and and in the process they they their combination created harmonies of consonants and dissonance and resolution in ways that I'd never thought of and that a listener wouldn't think of and i used that work as a um, uh, as a sort of small requiem for a friend of mine who had died, mm. and played it at a um, at a uh, at his uh, not his funeral, but his what the wake, you, not a wake, a wake. Uh, memorial a memorial service, yeah. uh, a faculty at the university, and it went over well, probably because it it was something they knew that they were hearing the first, you know, it was a premiere, mm-hmm. and that they knew it had been dedicated to. Um, 
to this friend of mine who had uh, who died, and so it had a context, which is different than just listening to the piece alone. But I've listened to it many times since, and it it does have a a real feel to it of of um, because of its tempo and uh, its single-minded nature of just ascending, that that you know really does have a, a, a moving feel to it, but. That was really cheating because I, I really did. Yeah. While I allowed the notes to be free, I guided them uh, with constraints in the program uh, towards an ultimate goal where they once they reach it they they die out. Uh, so it had a beginning, middle, and an end. And the minute it started, within the first minute of when it started, and it lasted about eleven minutes, I think, you sort of knew where it was going and why. And and when it got there and finished, you felt satisfied that it achieved exactly hmm. what you thought it would achieve in the process and uh, giving it a title helped you know requiem uh, for so and so I won't go into the names and the, con- the, the just the context too of it being context. tied to that that moment was important as well yeah. is is so is knowing is, is knowing the this the this structural outline of a piece or um, I, I guess sort of the rules of, of classical music is that important to enjoyment you know, as you said, knowing that something well, I don't is know about classical music. Now, I just simply say that pieces that last longer than a couple of minutes uh, take a different kind of approach than pieces which are meant to be mm-hmm. uh, relatively quickly enjoyed and then either forgotten or hummed. Sure, but you don't usually play that piece over and over again. It's uh, the difference between a short story and a novel, perhaps. Exactly. Well. Not quite. Uh, having written a number of both, <laughs> I would say that short stories have their own wicked natures. Yeah. Uh, that I don't think equates to um, short songs versus symphonies. But the pacing is different, certainly. The pacing is entirely different. And, um, uh, yeah. But with, with short stories, there are things you can, get, you, can't, you can get away with in novels you can't get away with in a short story. Yeah. It's just the truth. If you're going to really try to write a great short story, it's incredibly yeah. tough. Uh, where in music, I think you can get... Well, again, it's context. I mean, if you've got a piece of music you're dancing to, you can get away with, all, you can get away with murder because nobody's listening to it. Half yeah, time. They're yeah. just letting their bodies flow with the beat of, yeah. the, of the piece. Uh, if you're playing a piece that somebody's heard before that is you know, proven that the melodic line really works like Hey Jude or something by the Beatles, I mean, you're gonna, that's going to work no matter what. Hmm. Um, and so... There's again, as we've said before, you said so adequately before. You know, context is in fact everything. Yeah. Um, but yes, larger forms require a great deal of attention to keep the audience's attention, uh, a- as well as you know. So you're dealing constantly with this idea of boredom versus excitement. Mm-hmm. If you're exciting all the time, the excitement itself can become boring. And uh, a lot of contemporary composers, in particular, believe that if you're boring all the time you can get excited hmm. <laughs> I've not found that to be so much the case <laughs> as the uh, former but nonetheless others uh, of pe- other people out there have, have think that's the case uh, but yes that form is what makes symphonies and uh, and songs no matter whether they're classical popular or whatever uh, you know extraordinarily different um, I, I, th- I, th- I think I might have a problem of, of, of context in that uh you know, I've been trying. I've been trying actively to listen to more classical music um, recently. I've, you know, I, I, I've not had a lot of trouble uh, enjoying other kinds of music all over the board. And you know, I've, I, I love a lot of jazz music. And mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, I don't know how much of it is is my lack of musical training, my my lack of sort of broader knowledge on the subject um how much of it is just sort of the era that i was i was born in and maybe the context in which we've been fed classical music um you know are, are, i i guess i guess i would ask you uh, on a personal level are there any um are, are, are there any are there any tips or you know is there can you point me in the right direction of you know I, I want to I would love to sit down and have a a, a transcendent experience with um you know a, a, a Bach piece or or a, you know a Beethoven piece and I've I've largely been unable to do so. Well, you put your finger on it a number of times in what you said, <laughs> okay. and, the, and the question itself is the answer, mm. uh, and that is when I was young. Uh, my family, my mother in particular, had a collection of then 78 RPM records, 
really heavy yeah. guy, duty guys. And uh, radio, you know, had such lousy speakers. I wasn't interested in it. But the, but the record player had had a great. We had a fairly good system, and so I ended up playing classical music when I was very very young. Mm. My mother started me on piano lessons, playing classical music when I was very young. So I grew up with it. It was my, you know, and that those formative years are extremely important. And if you don't have them, mm. it's kind of unrealistic to expect that later in life when you don't have that background you're suddenly going to appreciate something out of the blue because you're not used to it. It's like it's like food. I mean, you know, if you've been in the United States of America for, until you're 45 and then you suddenly go to yeah. England and somebody feeds you a meat pie, which even sort of, you know, I find difficult to imagine enjoying, but, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that that English food, including meat pies, are something which which is is as uh, entertaining, enjoyable, meaningful uh, as uh, any American dish that you might find mm-hmm. useful uh, to eat or enjoyable to eat. It's just that you don't have that makeup, and just getting it for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months in staying in England, you're not going to feel the same appreciation mm. that an English person would have eating that food. Same thing with music; you just have to have it uh, given to you. So you have to give it time to do so and you have to be able to have a lot of pieces under your belt so you can compare one to the other and compare performances one to the other until you really get it right I mean I know close friends of mine in not in classical music because I do have friends that you know (laughs) uh, that are in sciences and so forth and my even my kids in which I can't you know directly speak to them about what I enjoy out of life and they can't you know, necessarily direct me to the same kinds of things towards what they in, in, in enjoy in life. Nothing wrong with that, but we should try to be as open-minded as possible yeah. and try to to get that. But you've got to give it time. Mm. You've really got to give it time. You've got to listen to a wide breadth of music. Just like, for example, I could, I could, I could interview you now and say, listen, I don't have any appreciation right now for most popular music. Yeah. I really don't. But understandable. I see all these people doing so, and I would like to get some of that. <laughs> yeah. And while it might not be the same transcendent experience that I, I have with classical music, I don't know that for sure. Mm. It might be to them. I'd like to get that. And, and how might I do it? And I think you would probably tell me that I should listen to a broad spectrum of different kinds of music. Mm-hmm. You might even give me a list of them. And I would listen to them, and I'd begin to hear differences between the forms of one to the other. And as I did, I'd begin to appreciate more of yeah. one to the other. And pretty soon, after quite a long time, because after all, you spent you spent a lifetime listening to one, you know, not your whole life, mm-hmm. well, maybe your whole lifetime, but it's a pretty small lifetime so far compared to what I've spent. <laughs> uh, you have ingrained habits, and there's you're not trying to rid yourself of them. You don't want to contradict them. You don't want to be in a situation where you're not going to enjoy and have those experiences with classical music. But let's say I do want to expand that and, and discover things about uh, Indian music, for example. That's a perfect, mm. perfect thing. I know Indian music yeah. from, from India. Fully That's different scales. Fully different scales. Yeah. All kinds of things I don't know anything about. Yet there's a, an incredible depth and, and experience involved with that. I know that. I know the people, not the people, but many people who are involved with that kind of music that are incredibly bright and love it as surely as much as I love what I listen to. And there's no reason to expect that it expected a tradition that great, that long, that involved, yeah. that complicated over so many centuries, couldn't achieve the same things that what I like. So if I wanted to do that, I wouldn't expect that I would you know, go to an Indian restaurant and listen to a couple of pieces and then yeah. say, well, I'm just not into this. I don't want to do that. I'd have to spend a few years really getting into it before I could appreciate the nuances and the effects. It, it, it seems it seems as though there is is an added layer when we're speaking specifically about classical music. This it's becoming more and more the case of case with you know jazz music. I mean, certainly you can walk into um, a Starbucks and they'll be playing Miles Davis or yes. something like that. And so there's some time involved. Yeah, um, but you know, in, in Indian music again, aside from from really seeking it out and, and going to an Indian restaurant where, where you'll listen to it. There's this, there's this added, added level of um, associating classical music with 
elevators you know with with all these other things these great grandiose beautiful pieces of music or even um it's a little bit less the case but the but christmas is coming up even you know even even you're sort of minimalizing Angels, it Messiah, et yeah as, as but as christmas as christmas carols um and and or even you know for as much value as i think like fantasia brought to a lot of people and their appreciation of classical music it is sort of a Mickey Mouseification of it, or um, a lot of these great pieces we hear in the back of a of a Looney Tunes cartoon. Does that 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 has to make it e- even more difficult to really f- appreciate it in that way? To really have that connection to the music when you're associating it with these mass-produced pieces of pop culture? Yes, <laughs> that's the easy. That's the easy answer. Yeah. Um, I, I really can't say yeah. much else about it, but yes, it does make it more different, uh, more difficult. Uh, and um, do, do your students um, do, do, do your students tend to come in with a with with an appreciation of of the great pieces? Well, it depends on what students and at what level you're talking mm-hmm. about. At uh, the doctoral level, my students uh, would definitely have experiences with that tradition. If you're if you're talking about uh, undergraduate lower division students who are not music majors, not likely. Yeah. So so I mean that that's interesting. I mean, in in some of the cases, that appreciation has occurred over their their college career, or when. Well, I mean, I actually prefer teaching. I mean, nothing against my doctoral students, yeah. but they've, they've already pretty much codified what they want, and mm. I'm just sort of, yeah. I'm putting little touches to the icing on the cake, yeah. which, you know, I'd rather be at the bottom level. I'd rather be, you know, I'd rather be teaching a 400-student class of non-music majors about classical music, <laughs> and that, that really excites me, because I'm able then to, to inaugurate, I hope, at least in some, at some level, uh, the beginnings of some appreciation that the students might not otherwise have had. And so I like what are traditionally called music appreciation, appreciation classes. Hmm. I, I love to teach them. Uh, and uh, one of the things I do in there, when I did teach them, I'm retired now, but when I did teach them, um, aside, by the way, from other music theory courses and high-level mm-hmm. uh, composition courses and so forth, was to bring students, music students, onto the stage at the beginning of each class um, and have them perform a piece, and then I interview them for a couple of minutes. Mm. So a very short piece, so that the students in the class could relate by age to the person on the stage and see that that person was really going through some you know, transformative experience mm. as they played the piece. And you know, they're not like some old dude like me standing up in front of them preaching about how great this stuff is. And then I'd interview the person so they could actually hear what they had to say about their relationship to this classical piece. And I do this every single, during the the course of the quarter, as we went through the history of music chronologically. I'd have the students, different students come in each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and sometimes faculty and other people from them, guests of the university, to play and discuss with me briefly. Again, the whole thing took less than five minutes of class time, and then we'd go into other things. Mm. But we'd, we'd, we'd have this this back-and-forth dialogue that I think was, uh, you know, well, reading my evaluation of the course was really helpful, mm. and and uh, the, the students got the, the feeling that this was not, an, you know, a lot like a, a um, it was more like a gallery, a living gallery mm. of living artists' work rather than a museum mm-hmm. where you're seeing ancient works of art from 500 years ago and, and not knowing how to approach it here we're, we're seeing ancient pieces of music you know that may be three or four hundred years old and but we're seeing living young people just like hmm. them playing them and enjoying this, them and this had meaning for them that I know from reading the evaluations they 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 said was really really important to their lives this is a, this is an example of where that live performance is important yes. for the appreciation yes um, in fact it, it it's critical as far as yeah. I'm concerned because always playing them on records there is you, I mean the people in the audience can't tell if, if the 
the right notes from the wrong notes unless they're blatant. Yeah. So they're not. It's not as important for for the performance to be an accurate representation of the composer. Mm. What's really important is to see somebody your own age engaged in something different than you are, and then you know, me asking them questions that they want to ask. Actually, I let them let me ask a couple questions yeah. too about why the hell their students are doing this kind of thing. And when they tell them that, rather than me telling them that, they really get, you know, get excited about it. I, so I, I, I just finished playing a Chopin piece for you. What, what is the first question you ask me? You know, if I, 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 I sit up in front of the class and play something, what is the minute they get up, that, what, is, what is that first question? Oh, I don't know. It depends on the performer okay. and what they, how they played and what piece it is and where we are in the class. Mm-hmm. But I'd probably begin with something like, what brought you to, to, to this piece? Did it mm. sign to you? Mm, mm-hmm. Did you like it and bring it to your teacher and said, I wanted to play that? So you, you've what let them... What role did classical music yeah. play in your early life? Did you just get? Did you just suddenly come to the university and decide you wanted to be a classical pianist? Or was this something you started when you were six? Does anybody does anybody decide to be a classical pianist when they come to you? Oh, seems, yes. Oh, really? Yeah, they don't get there very fast, and they don't, they don't actually succeed most of the time. Seems like you have to be work. born at a piano well, for most not, of these not people. Quite born at one, but certainly <laughs> you had piano lessons when you were early yeah. on, and and so forth. So there are there are yeah yeah. Usually you find some context there, but then I ask the student themselves. I'll say, you know, is it? Do you feel it's important, or could somebody in here mm. actually be a concert pianist, like you just yeah. said, at, starting now, or m- more importantly to the group here, since most of them are not going to be concert pianists? Do you do you think that you know what would you what would you suggest to them? Mm. They listen for yeah. if they were to go right now to the library and listen to the piece you just played. Now they're going to hear it for the second time when they go over there. What should they be listening for that that they didn't listen for the first time that huh. might make them appreciate it more? And the students, of course, have don't have the clue first clue what I'm going to ask them. So they have to come out. It's like a Rorschach test. Yeah. They have to just come out with it, you know, yeah. bang. And often what they do, it's really great. They come up with something that actually is very useful because it's off the top of their head rather than prescribed by what they think I want them to say. Hmm. So they'll, you know, they'll they'll say surprising things, which sometimes I wish they wouldn't say, but most of the time I'm glad they did. So let's start with that then. Let's get let's get back. I want to get uh, you know get back to another another personal question, but I, I I really on a personal level want want this as a takeaway after I leave this. Uh, after I leave this interview, um, you know, let's. I mentioned Glenn, Glenn Gould before. He's and he's you know I, I've he's one of the people I've been I've been toying around with a little bit. Um, Pablo Casals is is another one as well. I'd, but let, let's take the the, the Goldberg variations, the 1955 version. Um, as somebody who knows Bach very well, what, what is the thing I should be listening to in those pieces? Okay, what things to listen for? Well, I mean, generally speaking, the first thing... I mean, it depends on your the reason you're listening. Mm. For example, if you were a pianist, I would say, don't listen to just that version. L- don't listen to the second version. Listen to the first version of, 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 uh, of Gould, and then go listen to Horowitz play the same thing, or somebody else play mm. the same piece, and then come back and listen to the, uh, to the Gould. And then start asking yourself questions. Yeah. Why is one better than the other? Are they the same? And why did one of them do this instead of that? Yeah. And then maybe it'll draw you to a score of some kind. And even if you don't read music, you can learn to read music and uh, very quickly. You can get a feel for things by just looking on the page. I mean, a curved hmm. line that goes over a couple of bars is obviously a legato, meaning you know, play it smoothly. Mm-hmm. And did one of them play it smoothly and the other one not? And before long, you're involved, you, whether you want to be or not. Yeah. But I would say, again, we come up with the idea that context was everything. Well, context is everything from a listener's standpoint as well. I mean, let me give you a good example. Uh, there's a, a work by uh, Mahler, uh, mm-hmm. his Ninth Symphony, which uh, you know some people think was dedicated to his uh, to one of his daughters, which uh, which who died uh, at a very young age, and was particular. He was particularly fond of, and um, you know, I happen to love Mahler's music very much. And and when I listened to the to the Ninth Symphony by many different conductors, it was um, 
it was one of these transcendence experiments experiences for me. I, I must admit. But when I came to the to Bernstein's recording, which is, which is, um, which was, I don't believe even meant to be a recording. I think it was of a hmm. rehearsal, but it was all they had. There wasn't a recording that put out. Uh, about two thirds of the way through the piece, you hear him desperately trying to pull the sound from the orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, one of the great orchestras <laughs> in the world, and he slams his foot down on the podium, which is completely and utterly audible in the recording of that piece. And it is a treasure to hear it there. Here I'm sort of, you know, reneging, I suppose, on an earlier statement I made about live performances. Yeah. But it's, again, it's on a recording, so it's still, it's there in perpetuity. And every time I listen to that, that slamming his foot down to get what he wants from the orchestra is so incredibly powerful to me. I just want to cry because I realize knowing the score and having the score probably up here someplace, uh, as well as I do, I know what he's trying for. I know yeah. what the music's trying for. And I know what the musicians are attempting to get. And yet they, he's right. They haven't quite got it yet. And yet his foot pounding on the floor at that precise moment gets it hmm. even though he didn't intend that to be the case it's 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 the it's the act of doing that to get it that actually makes it happen in a in a completely perverse sense uh of uh, of my imagination thinking it could possibly happen i mean it's 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 ridiculous that, that should work I it's mean, this is a mistake but it's but it, it, it's a mistake in in one sense but when when you're speaking specifically about his foot hitting the ground i mean if if emotion is what you're trying to 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 glean from all these pieces, that is a yeah. pure statement of emotion. That is pure emotion, right well, there. And what makes it more extraordinary is the fact that nobody in their right mind on any other recording of any other piece would ever allow that to be. <laughs> and they have spliced that out and spliced the issue yeah. without it in it. But the people here who did this particular recording left it in for a reason, and so it's the only recording I've ever heard mm. in which a conductor has slammed his foot against a podium or her yeah. foot against a podium. And it's in the final recording of the piece, uh, in a set of the complete symphonies by Mahler, recorded by Bernstein, who was the one who discovered Mahler after Mahler, like Bach, had been forgotten. Yeah. Uh, most during his lifetime, as well as after it, for quite a number of years, quite a number of decades before he found it and discovered it and recorded it. So, um, I'm not sure where I was. In, with your question, but <laughs> I can't remember the question at this point. I think we, I think you went in, in a in a good direction. I mean, all the you know the other, the, the other connection again. If you're trying to to if the end goal is is a, a personal connection with the music, um, it is. There, and there's something to be said for the knowledge that you know Bernstein, one of the great you know of the of the latter half of the 20th century, and and the New York Philharmonic, obviously the best of the best. If if there are things that they can't achieve, um, that speaks to you, right? Yeah. Knowing that that even even the, the people at the top of their game are still unable to yes. to get that. Yeah. And I think your question had to do with uh, uh, with the Goldberg variations. That's how it started. Oh yeah. And I was yeah, trying to tell yes. you that you should listen to. You should never just listen to one yeah. version of it. You should listen to two or three versions of it before you start. Not only picking your version as a performer if you were, but if you're not a performer, picking your version as the taste of your your listener mind. Because if I hadn't listened to Mahler's Ninth before I heard that foot down, yeah. that, that slamming foot on the podium, I wouldn't have appreciated it mm. anywhere near as much. I, was, I probably would have stopped the recording and say, well, to hell with this. But I'd heard the piece maybe 20 times before that, if not more. And when he did that, oh, God, <laughs> it was like... Oh man, yeah. that, that that was that, that's like hitting the four hundred foot home run, and yeah. you know you've hit it. You don't have to even watch the ball go over the fence. You just you just hear that ball hit the bat, and you know <laughs> it's gone. And that's what that's what I knew Bernstein felt when he hit that floor. And it was like there was a you know a relationship between. He, he's the, the pitcher in this scenario. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and well, he's the pitcher and the batter in a way because he's he's also I think at the same time as he's saying, oh my god. What did I do? On the other hand, he's saying, "Oh my God, I'm glad I did it." Yeah. But in in yeah, not carrying the metaphor too thoroughly here, uh, I couldn't have I couldn't have begun to appreciate that if I, that was my first listening. Yeah. And so it's it's getting a a you know getting aware of a work. 
for example, when I was younger, when I'm a lot younger, when I was in my early teens listening to Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, which was my favorite piece, I would listen to it over and over again, the piece, but also listen to five or six other performances of the piece. And, and, uh, that wouldn't have, it wouldn't have made it, you know, it, it got to be a better experience each time. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. That's what I'm trying to say. It got to be so that each time I listened to it, I was more appreciative of the work, the performance, the, the, uh, everything about it that I could hear and again this was on these 76 RPM 78 78, recordings that were heavy the shellac yeah Yeah. shellac they were heavy and I I I had a record player that would stop you know they didn't they they didn't have enough room on them to put to put a whole movement of the work on so you had they just went the movement would just stop yeah and then you have to you wait for the automatic record changer plop the next thing down and then it would put the needle on and then it would go ahead to the extent that, by the way, as an interesting aside to this, which is actually related to it, I got so used to listening to the Rogmarovs mm-hmm. that when I went to an actual live performance, they kept going right on the spots. Where they, <laughs> they didn't know where stop. Side B was. They didn't know where Side B was. So, I mean, I, I said, what's going on here? You're supposed to stop and give me a break. Yeah. And I realized that I had been you know, sort of seduced uh, by these recordings to believe that wow. that was a part of the piece, great. which is insane. But it does tell you a lot about Context about context again. Yeah. Yes, context is everything, and you need lots of context to appreciate anything. Yeah, you can't appreciate it the first time, it, whether it's meat pies in an English uh, pub, or whether it's uh, it's a Bach B minor Mass, or or the Goldberg Variations. But I would suggest to you mm. uh, that you listen to it more than once at least, and then by more than one performer, so you can okay. begin to appreciate it from different perspectives. I mean, getting to know a. a the one thing about a longer form of music is that it it has built in it a kind of proof that if you can listen for the entire length of the piece, and that's not a short piece, right? Yeah. You listen to it all the way through in one sitting. Yeah. It ain't it ain't short. Yeah. It isn't as long as Mahler symphonies, but it ain't short. Yeah. And you and it's also in a way more easy to listen to because you can hear the variations stop and start. Which you can't in a lot of symphonic yeah. music. That it's tracks. It's on. tracks. tracks. You know, as I'm track one, to, track yeah. two, track three. Uh, depending on the performer, of course, they can sort of yeah. you know, slide them together if they want to. But but uh, but Gould definitely uh, stops between. Gould stops yeah. as he as he thought that Bach would want it hmm. in his uh, perspective. Um, it's just it, it's it's funny because you know aside from 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 maybe jazz, there aren't too many. Uh, music genres where you know if I, if if I was if you were asking me how to get into uh, you know in, into a, a Beatles song I wouldn't say oh well, you have to listen to the uh, the, the cover you know the <laughs> you, you you have to you have to listen to to the uh, the Aretha Franklin cover of the song to really enjoy, enjoy what, what John and Paul did with exactly. it but you have to do that with classical. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. You don't have to do it with uh, with pop. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you would get a lot more out of, mm-hmm. out of uh, uh, both Franklin and the Beatles in yeah. terms of that piece if you heard it in, in uh, different guises. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a piece that lasts an hour long and holds your attention yeah. throughout is not necessarily better than, but a quite different experience than uh, a piece that lasts two or three minutes that you can immediately listen to it a couple more times without giving away a whole, you know, portion of your life to. I mean, listening to a, a large symphony is is a um, is a hard thing to do because you're you're you know even if your mind is at work thinking about what you're doing at the time of your this time of your life and you're not paying attention to the music, it's still an investment that. Uh, that you don't have to make necessarily in in shorter music, and mm. and 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 you're not apt to be willing to make it uh, unless you really feel that the goals you're attempting to achieve, the meaning you're hoping to get from this experience, is uh, worthwhile enough to have you do it. And, yeah. and uh, I don't blame people for not wanting to do that. I do blame our schools, um, particularly in the United States. It's not the same in Europe, but in the United States. For not giving students a chance, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't mind uh, students who listen to classical music seriously for a while and then say, "I've just had it with this. I don't get it, so yeah. I'm going to do this." But 
I, I am disappointed when our, our own school systems don't even give you the opportunity to listen to uh, any variety of music, from, yeah. from Indian ragas to classical music to, uh, to Balinese gamelan to, to, uh, to pop to rap to whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, should, we should have a broad palette for these kinds of things and make our own choices. But if you're only given one choice, what kind of choice are you make, making? So there you have it. That was uh, David Cope, uh, professor emeritus at the uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, my alma mater. He, uh, he's, he's been actually composing uh, computer-based music since the, since the punch card days, so doing some really, really fascinating work on that front. Um, always, a, always a pleasure to, to speak with him. Um, this is actually the second time I've interviewed uh, Professor Cope. Uh, the first time was for, uh, for Gadget. Um, we were, uh, he, he, lives, uh, he lives near campus. We were, um, went over to his place and uh, as we were walking up the stairs he sort of he, he turns around and um, I, I don't know if warn is the right word but he turns around and tells me that we're, uh, we're about to go into uh, into his, his laboratory and to, to expect something unusual and I, I very cockily answered uh, yeah I've, you know I've seen a lot of weird laboratories in my day and, you know, at that point we were doing a lot of traveling for space and, and robot stuff uh, but lo and behold we actually got up to his his office and it was um, a very small room with about uh, 200 wind chimes which turns out uh, that's that's uh, that's his passion um uh, Cope is, is really into uh, into algorithmic different algorithmic ideas and um, so now uh, every time a, a student of his travels abroad he will get a good time um, so uh, thanks so much to uh, to David Cope for that uh, thanks uh, thanks to Mark and everybody else at Boing Boing as always for hosting this podcast thanks to Brian for uh, for editing this thing thanks thanks to you the listener for for being a listener if you liked what you heard you uh, please rate us on iTunes you can uh, send us an email to RIY Wildcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's riwildcast.tumblr.com. Um, thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring the show this week. And uh, we, uh, we will be back next week. We've got another episode of RIYL coming right at you. 